Back and live. I'm Jimmy Krupka, and welcome to Arc City. The Arc City Podcast is presented by Stiefel Financial. Go to stiefel.com to learn more. Okay, Arc City is currently located here in Europe. I am live on location in the center of the Alps region. We are here in the heart of the ski racing world, and it feels really good. I've done a bit of training, a bit of racing. I've eaten a lot of pizza. And I dropped by Kitzbühel last Saturday night. I had a couple of days off. And I watched the award ceremonies for the downhill where American Travis Kanong was awarded his third place trophy. It was really cool to see Travis get that podium that he'd been searching for. And it was his last race ever at Kitzbühel. So that was pretty special. This has been my goal. It's my last race as well. What? Not, not this season, but last time of the strife. I, I can't believe. I'm ready for something new. But this is my last chance, and I've pushed hard, and I have a podium. You can't, you can't The crowd loves you. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure being in Kitzbühel. Best downhill in the world. Best place to be a ski racer. He's such a great man, ladies and gents. Big round of applause for Travis Then the following day, I watched the slalom where Dave Riding had a beautiful second run to move up from 16th to 2nd. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I got to train slalom on the course next to Dave Riding, and I caught up with him in the afternoon after training to have the conversation that you're about to hear. Don't forget to stick around at the end for the history nugget, which is the story of the modernization of the Alpine binding. But now, without further ado, the first and only British person to ever win an Alpine World Cup, Dave Riding. Dave Riding, welcome to Arc City. Thanks for having me, dude. It's good to have you. Um, I've, you've always been on my list of guests to have. Um, and like, and and before you won the World Cup, I'm not a bandwagoner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I remember you won the first run in Levy, and you were winning at like the middle split, and you blew out, and like we were all heartbroken watching because we were like, that might have been it. Yeah. Like I. I mean, I, I'm ashamed to say it, but I was like, that might have been it. Dave's getting old. Maybe he'll never win a World Cup. So it was like so sweet last year when you won that. Um, so I guess like we might as well just talk about that first. Yeah, sure. Do you mind like telling me kind of what you were feeling like in the years leading up after that levy where you got so close? Um, and there were other races where you got close too. And kind of like what your process was and what your mindset was and kind of how, what you thought about ski racing in general. Yeah, like you say, after the, the levy thing, I knew I was skiing good before that race. And I had a pact with myself that I was just going to go all in, like yeah. both runs. So even after the first run, I was like, right, well, I'm just going to send, send it. it again. Yeah, um, I should have used a bit more tactics maybe on the pitch. I didn't know there was as much of a shelf than there was. But like you say, um, I also thought was that it because really yeah like yeah i don't know you, ne you never know if you're going to get another opportunity um obviously over the years i did um but yeah it was a really really hard pill to swallow it it probably it really knocked me for the season i had a real tough year after that and actually two years two years later i was in second after the first run and fell at the bottom of the pitch and i, I was so i was like oh crikey this is just it's just not for me um but yeah, just trust the process, keep working hard. And yeah, last year I had some a lot of speed in training already, so I knew I was fast. Before last year I was always consistent, but last year I really found a bit more speed. Some like it, maybe it was training with the younger boys, Billy and Laurie, mm -hmm. um, or whatever it was. But yeah, but again at the start of last year I uh, I was fifth in Val d'Isère. I was in fourth after the first run in Madonna, straddled. I was half a second off in Adelboden at the race later, straddled. So I was like, I'm 35. This, I just don't think it's going to happen. And I remember Stroltz, Johannes Stroltz won in, in Alaboden from Bib 38. And uh, I know him quite well. And I was like congratulating him. And I said to him in Wengen, I said, you know, I think I don't think I'll ever get one, but 
um, it was really awesome to see you do it. And he said to me, no, 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 keep keep going, keep trying. I was like, yeah, I'll keep trying, obviously. But <laughs> And then the next race, I win. It was, yeah, it was crazy. And, but just trust the process and, and work. It was a lot of work. Yeah. Never stop working. Yeah. yeah. And I've heard that about you. I listened to, if anyone's interested in more of Dave's story, you should listen to Aaron Milzinski's podcast, Unspoken Bravery. Um, and you, I've listened to that one and, and heard kind of the, the, the nitty gritty yeah. details of that process. And I remember you said that you like you're in your garage, you have your gym so you can just like wake up yeah. and it just makes it easy <laughs> yeah. to grind because it's yeah. right there. Yeah. Yeah. I used to, well, when I was young, I was, I was like a stick. I was so skinny. Uh-huh. And um, I used to hate traveling to the gym because it would take at least an hour out of my day. Um, so my dad, when I still lived at home, built me a, a shed and, and stuck a weight stand in there. And we made some, we got some playground mats so you could drop the weight. And uh, and that's when I really started. I don't know if I'd have still done it in, if I'd gone to a gym, but it made it easy. And then I was, yeah, I just started making gains. So as soon as I was able to get my own place, I thought, well, that's worked for me. So let's do it here as well. Um, and like I, I cycle out the house, I run out of the house, I train in my garage mm. for, for the weights and it's no frills. It's, it's a, a lifting platform that I built myself, a weight stand and some weights. I don't need, I don't need all these machines. You can do anything with a lifting platform and that's, that's yeah. all I've got in there. A few little extra balls, but yeah. Yeah. That's great. I, I promised someone I would ask this question. Um, I was brainstorming with with some of my teammates, and I was like, what question should I ask Dave? Yeah. And they're like, well, Dave's baby is only a couple months. How old is your baby? Six months now, yeah. Oh, okay. We were trying to figure out the math. Because so in the U.S., there's like a lot of Super Bowl babies. Oh, yeah, Because yeah. like a, a city wins a Super Bowl <laughs> oh, yeah. and everyone goes kids home and makes baby. a baby. <laughs> we were wondering if it was a kids fuel baby. No, no, no. <laughs> You're already three months pregnant there. Yeah. No, um, okay, it's, yeah. I can't, I, and my, wife, my wife's very understanding of my career. And um, it was kind of like a natural thing to wait until after, say, my last Olympics, which last year probably was, or it definitely was. And then we were going to move forward. And I didn't know if I would ski this year, but after last year being good, I thought, well, why not? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was it was always the plan to do it once I'd sort of had my chunk of my career done so that I could just focus on that. And then that was always a plan for a family straight after. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Because yeah. we were always trying to figure it out. But, yeah, I guess that's probably a hard part of it is once you're hitting your mid-30s, like, I'm sure your wife was like, Hey, I want to get going here. Like, what's that like balancing the the family life? Um, yeah, I just look at it. She's understanding and supportive and whatever I try and do with skiing, she supports with, without many questions, which is not fortunate, but yeah, it's what you need. Um, yeah. Unresounding support from her, just no matter what she's there. So, um, when I said, let's, let's just wait for the Olympics and go, go after that. She was like, right that's fine um made a few adjustments that's why the baby's with me now like for two yeah. weeks because um yeah it's it's only fair that i do bring that into my life as well because that was always the plan and i've got to respect that so yeah baby on tour for two weeks is uh is new but um thankfully she sleeps well so <laughs> it's not been really an issue that's that's very good yeah yeah, yeah I, so i've been for those listening, I've been training uh, on the slalom course next to Dave here at Niedertai in Austria. Um, and today you had your wife and, and kid out there at the bottom yeah. watching every run. Yeah. It, and it's funny, Bodie, Bodie Miller got a lot of flack during the last or two Olymp- Olympics ago when he was commentating. He, he made some comment like, oh, this person had a kid or this person had a baby. That means they're getting slower. Like, is it? Do you think there's a something beneficial about about having a special person in your life that supports you, or does it take away, or like what what do you think? Um, it's different. It's but I I would say it's different for every person because yeah. I, I used to train a lot with Alexander Horoshilov. We were based like half an hour away, so we'd always like train together. And he has two daughters, and his first podium came after he'd had his first daughter, and then he went on to have eleven podiums, I think. Uh, and and one schladming so it certainly doesn't necessarily make you slower i mean i'm yeah. 36 <laughs> now so i'm you know clinging on in slalom as it is but um no as long as you 
I was if I was going to ski this year, I knew I had to train as hard as I ever have. Otherwise, I'd just suck, and I don't want to do that. Yeah. It's, it's just not fun, and and I've I've um, I've had a, a good career, so I don't want to finish by just dwindling out for the sake of it. Um, but yeah, it is. It's certainly a lot of less free time. Uh, I can train as hard as I always do because it's simple at home, um, and my wife lets me. So yeah, yeah, it's. Um, but on the other side, yeah, I could see why Bodie would say that. Maybe more in speed because mm. there's so much risk in speed. Certainly, like say Kitzbühel or these downhills where you you're not necessarily putting your life on the line, but it's it's serious repercussions if you get things wrong. So you might not want to risk the same. I could understand mm. speed, but I think in tech, then th- that's not really there. Th- thankfully, so I don't think it 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 makes you slower at all now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, growing up skiing, you grew up skiing um, in Great Britain on plastic snow a lot of the time. Yeah, just th- plastic mats. Plastic mats, yeah, right? Yeah. 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 You, you know, anyone listening should should look it up. Uh, yeah. It's 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 hard to describe. Yeah. It's like fake grass, kind of. Yeah, yeah. It's like um, plastic bristles. Yeah, yeah. Um, and do you think that affected your skiing style? And do you think you there's any benefit to growing up on that snow or any any lasting impact? Um, I think the benefit of the plastic mats in Britain is you have a chance to ski. If yeah. I didn't have that, I would never have gotten to ski racing. That's a great point. And I didn't know about even the snow world until I was 12, 13, because that's the first time I went training on snow because I'd done well in a plastic race. So the it makes it accessible. What what we really lack on a plastic slope is the variables. Like you come away on snow and, well, you know yourself, the pieces are always different. It, it snows, it rains, it's freezing, it's icy. You have so many variables that I had to learn later on, which is probably why I came a bit later because, well, firstly, I didn't start skiing on snow until 13, um, mm-hmm. training anyway. But so then it's like, I'm already behind, like Hersha started probably when he was two yeah, and he's three years younger than me, but he probably started like seven years before me. So yeah, everything happens later, I think. And learning the variables was the, was the main thing, but I learned how to race. I learned how to tune my skis. Um, I learned how to ski fast on the flats because they're generally flat and short. So you have to learn how to generate speed and get a good start. Gotcha. And if there's not a like, say there's a start in the world cup where the speed isn't given to you so it's not a steep start um like madonna and mm-hmm. and even adelboden yeah i won the top two splits there this year even though i haven't had the best results this year i was fastest on the top two splits so it certainly has its its benefits but yeah learning you just don't you can't learn the whole variables or steeps or or that sort of side of it yeah you know looking at your style is it the kind of snow where or the, the plastic snow is is it hard to break the ski as in you have to arc everything? Yeah, yeah. You, you need a sharp ski. We always use shorter skis as well because they make the courses like shorter distance to fit more gates in because they're only 11 seconds long. Um, 11 seconds? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 11 second sprints is what we used to do. all, And we would race. You could you can race every weekend if you want in the summer. Um, but I, I wouldn't do that much. It, was, it, it gets quite costly if you're traveling around the UK doing that. But... Yeah, it's um, your sharp ski and and get the ski biting in there, like like you have to do on the ice or the, or, or the snow. Yeah, because looking at your style, like you've got a very um, you commit to the arc, and you've got a, you know, I mean, would you say like you don't break the ski as much as other skiers? No. Like you you do make a nice arc with a really nice top of the turn. And I was like just wondering if you think that's from plastic or <laughs> no? I'd say that's I'd say it's two things. One, the courses and the skis. That you used to have to really initiate the ski more to to get it to to pick oh, up to and turn. Actually, arc. Now the skis are a lot more aggressive. So, like you see, see guys standing much taller, going much straighter, and and kind of skipping the top of the turn quite often. Um, and the, the courses have got easier, so you can do In that. World Cup slalom. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent have got easier. Um, whereas when Kostelich was setting, or or even Marcel's guy. They were difficult courses and, and you had to, if you were skidding at every turn, you'd lose a lot. So I think a bit has come from that. And I it, I try and go straighter, but I definitely still like the top of the turn. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, and Lucas Broughton right now is winning and he and he does that like yeah. high hip kind of yeah. maybe a little dirty at the top of the turn, but so straight. Yeah. So speaking of this, um, 
you've got you guys have a set of Vengen. I don't know if I will get this podcast out before you race at Vengen, but yeah. uh, you're planning to. Is this is this something we can talk about? You're planning to maybe. <laughs> well, you probably put it out after then. <laughs> put it out after. Yeah. yeah. Well, everyone knows my coach. He likes to set turns. Yeah. He likes to set it difficult, um, and I think it makes it exciting. Like every race so far this year has just been regular rhythm, regular set. Mm-hmm. and sending it which i've got better at and obviously last year winning and two podiums my second podium was in garmish and my coach set the second run and and that's when i really came to the fore but um yeah it won't be easy yeah. um and i think that's i think we need we need uh variable courses in the world cup so you you see the all-round skier like guarantee your hemrick will be good because his technique is sound um the good skiers will still be fast um, yeah. It will just separate the field more if he if he goes turning. I mean, it's going to be warm, so yeah, there might be a, an element of the of taking into consideration the, yeah. the piece or or how the piece looks. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know what he'll go for yet, but it it won't be simple. Yeah, I mean, I remember watching you know World Cup slalom back in the day. Not back in the day, but yeah, you know, yeah. even a few years ago, yeah. and watching those coastalage courses and watching Hersher rip these like they used to set sometimes. I it's imprinted in my memory World Champs 2013 slalom. I just remember like it was just back and forth yeah. across the hill, and Hersher is just making these tiny arcs, and it was yeah. fun to watch. Like yeah, yeah. that stuff is is fun to watch. Like it's 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 fun to watch guys go fast, but at a certain point, everyone looks the same. Yeah, yeah. I think you need. You need everything and you need to see who can who can ski everything yeah. um but yeah it's definitely point and shoot a lot of the time now which is it's fun it's fun to ski hauling down there but um yeah why not why not switch it up a bit we'll see if more people do it this year but so far not since 1890 stiefel has been committed to safeguarding the money of others as if it were their own that means more than just building a portfolio It means they're invested in you and your future success. It means their advisors are real people, not robots or algorithms. And it means doing what's best for you, not just people like you. Stiefel is one of the oldest firms on Wall Street because they do things the way they should be done, and they've done it that way for over 130 years. Stiefel, since 1890. Visit stiefel.com to learn more. S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholson Company, Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Definitely. So you mentioned Tristan, your coach, yeah. um, who will have that set in Bengen. Can you talk a bit about your relationship with him and actually your relationship with your whole squad? And I would include in that squad Billy Major oh, yeah. and, and Laurie Taylor. Yeah. You guys, watching your unit, it feels like you're a well-oiled machine. Yeah, yeah. Well, Billy and Laurie are a key part of the squad now. Uh-huh. Um, especially in my t- the the stage of my career, I kind of like I need them because they're young, they're hungry, and it, and it makes me pull my finger out more often than not in training. So it keeps me it keeps my level up as well. But yeah, I um I've been with Tristan as a coach since 2010 season, so wow. the Vancouver Olympic season. Um, so we certainly know each other well, and we and we know what works for us, and we know the process that I've gone through to get my results from britain which has never been done before um, i think the next generation can do more be- bigger and better things than mm-hmm. i've done um, we just have to keep the knowledge in great britain because we don't have the we have a few experienced coaches but we don't have the vast amounts so yeah. i've always been i've always been a fan of having brits in my team because that we're on the road a lot like like the americans so to have that vibe and the banter it I think it's really important for I've a long season. Notice the banter. You yeah. guys have great banter. Yeah, yeah. for a long season, <laughs> um, it's important because it, it can become a grind. But if you're willing, if you're having a laugh with it, it's good. Um, but yeah, we we go through the process. We we do the training, and yeah, I'd say we are a well-oiled unit. And hopefully, we can have some sponsors for next year as well. <laughs> yeah. So I actually want to mention that to the listeners. Is there any way that people listening can help? Because you guys have basically no funding this year from no we yeah exactly that so yeah we're we're all we're looking for sponsors of course and um getting in touch with the federation would be my would well i guess that's the way to do it yeah okay yeah 
you mentioned the the next generation of of skiers from the UK or, or what was it Great Britain UK Great Britain yeah. UK same thing yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so uh, Billy Major Lloyd Taylor you both scored points this year yeah and then there's what like what's the development system like in uh, Great Britain and it, is there are are you going to be part of that in the future or are you already part of that like what's the how, what are the is it improving basically is my question um, it's tough I mean there's always it always seems to come in waves like there's the both the both the guys with me are born ninety six and Charlie Raposo on the GS side yes. is born ninety six um, between me and them. Obviously, there's nobody anymore. There was a couple of hopefuls, but faded away. Will I be part of the pathway in the future or development? Then I don't know yet. Um, I've got to, I've got to see. It's it's difficult because if I'm going to commit to coaching or whatever it is, then I probably have to spend time away. And I've spent so much time away from my yeah. wife and family that um, first and foremost, I have to put them first from now, basically. So. We'll see. I'd like to stay involved somehow and pass on my knowledge. Um, but I see it like if we have to make it like British cycling because we're never going to be like have the vast numbers. We're just not going to have that. Mm. But we should be able to have some decent quality. And um, I think in tw two, year 2000, in the Summer Olympics, we had one gold medal on track cycling. The, the year after that, they had two or three and then kept doubling it to London Olympics when I think they won every single gold. Really? And I'm not saying we're going to go out there and win every single gold, but I, I always look at it at athletes in the top 30. And right now there's me on the guys. So the next generation, there has to be two top 30 athletes, which hopefully Laurie and Billy can do that in slalom. Um, and then after that, the next generation, whatever that is from 2002 to 2006, we have to look three or four. And that has to be the sort of goal how i see it to to keep building british skiing as a as something otherwise it's just going to fade away like it was before i came back bringing it back so yeah we have to get something in place to make that happen and yeah i think i could be part of that mm. some in some way yeah and the generation after that, there'll be no snow, so it doesn't matter anyway. Then we might be on plastic slopes, and then we'll, yeah, well, maybe we will be winning all the golds. <laughs> That's right. Oh, it's going to come full circle. Or we'll be in Saudi Arabia with a massive indoor ski slope, and yeah, there'll be Olympics there. There you go. Yeah, it's, I. It's funny to talk about the you know the the bad trend that's going on right now and i don't know if you think about that at all uh but i guess i'd never thought about the solution of just skiing on plastic snow you know in, yeah. in the year 2200 or whatever <laughs> there's a lot of high resorts so i don't think we'll run out of snow in the next 10 to 20 years we might have to take skiing to some different resorts because for the likes of garmish at 700 meters or zagreb it really doesn't look good and it certainly doesn't yeah. look good on tv for the sport so I think there's got to be some some thought going in into where we're going to hold these venues. I mean, some of them are iconic. You go to you can't change Adelboden, Kitzbühel, Wengen, Schladming. They're just the classics, and and the fans turn up there. So we need fans. We need snow, and but we do have to look. Well, I think we have to look at higher resorts. I think because there are some resorts. Yeah. There's loads of good snow around. It's yeah. just in the higher places. Yeah. To kind of do a 180 here i want to talk about your setup because i think as a what i've learned as a skier coming up the ranks is you have to dial in your setup and you have to figure out ways to be adaptive mm -hmm. so i was wondering kind of one if if you have different setups for different snow conditions or different hills and then two and which is i think the, the tougher question is like what your process is on finding what works because it's sometimes like skiing is such an unscientific thing yeah yeah yes yeah, you do so much tinkering and i think most people certainly outside of ski racing but watch ski racing don't quite understand how many changes you can make in your setup like not yeah. even just on the edge the ramp angles different bindings different boot angles uh, stiffnesses it's probably if you put all the all the different things together it's probably quite a lot of hundreds different setups oh, yeah. if not close to a thousand oh, the combination probably a thousand of setups um i would love to ski on the same setup every single day and not have to worry about it or maybe just change the edge but um certainly we've been searching as a 
on the equipment to find the solution for the salt um, and all the, the, the sort of spring snow. And there's more spring races <sighs> yeah, every yeah. year. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but we're, we're getting close again. Uh, Adelboden was a step for me in the right direction, even though I made a huge mistake second run. I felt like I could attack again, whereas Garmisch, I just, I just skied down because I had no feeling. So, yeah, a lot goes into it. All summer is, you. Know, I'm always talking to my ski, my ski tech, always thinking, right, how was that feeling? What, what could we try? Or I like to keep it, keep it simple. Certainly, I don't like to change too much with my boot. It's hard to keep like, it simple. <laughs> oh, it's really hard, especially if it's not going well, because yep. you have to kind of search, and then you can get down a rabbit hole and you're lost and it's got worse not better so yeah you've got to do it a sort of logical way um and i'm 36 now so i've kind of know what could work and what won't work um so yeah i can whittle it down quite quick but it's trial and error you have to try it and until you try it you don't know yeah so yeah if you like when i was tuning my own skis and in the europa cup um well, I didn't try as many things because I didn't have the same support either. But yeah, you're constantly in the ski room thinking about stuff. Yeah, it's it's such a balance, right? Like not going down the rabbit hole, yeah. but trying to find something that's going to yeah. be I, better. I see it quite tough for the Americans because certainly on, I think it's the West Coast, everything seems to be aggressive. Yeah. So you grow up, it's not quite the same as growing up on dry slope or plastic bristles, but you, you grow up on this aggressive snow. You come to Europe and it's icy as hell sometimes <laughs> and it takes time to adjust and find. And that's what it's tricky for that. You can see it's, it's tough for the first year or two when they come over. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. It's such a hard change. Like even I spent enough time in Europe that after a couple of days, I'm getting used to the, yeah. the really slick stuff when, yeah. it, when it occurs. But even coming from in a single season, I spent a month and a half skiing that styrofoam grippy snow in Colorado. Yeah. And then I come over here and I'm like, oh, I got to figure it all out again. Yeah, yeah. So that's definitely tough. Uh, do, do you have, uh, but you do change maybe like your, the way you tune your ski or something for different kinds of snow. Is that? Um, I, over the over the time, yeah, I have started to change it bit by bit. But um, I wouldn't if I didn't have to, like I say. But yeah, yeah certain things like go sharper or more aggressive in the salt. Um, I used to change the boot canting, but kind of gone away from that. So yeah, I do change things. It, it changes each season as well. Because even like my Fisher, they bring out a different ski. And what worked tuning it one way won't work on this one. So you're figuring it out. And then hopefully within a week or two, it's actually it's better. That's the goal anyway. The different skis will get you. Yeah, I I made a huge mistake the past couple of days. I didn't realize that that when I got new pairs of skis from Razi, that they were different models. Oh and wow! So yeah, I the for the past three weeks I've been skiing these two pairs of skis, and every time I'm on one pair, I'm like, this is good, and then I get in the next pair, and I go. I'm not sure what's going on, but something's wrong. Yeah, I didn't bother to check the model number, and I just yeah, found yeah. out today that it was messed up, and I was like. I think I just threw two weeks down the drain. I don't know if you've had any experiences like that, but I, that one, like, I mean, it's all I was learning, laughing, but it killed me. It's all learning. Yeah. Um, you probably learned now to check the model numbers every time <laughs> yeah. you get a ski. Uh, and then you ask for a certain model number when, when you're, when you're ordering the ski, but yeah. it's all a learning process. Um, still learning it. Yeah. My grand old age. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I, I hate to talk about age, but, but that's what like a great storyline about you is, is, you just kept working and plowing along and now at age 36 or you're 36 36 now. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you won a world cup and I wonder if there's, uh, things you're doing now to kind of help you stay young. I don't know if you like look at anything that Tom Brady does or if Tom Brady's inspiring to you. I think I I've always, I've never been a big party guy, so I never certainly never battered my body with alcohol when yeah. I was young. Don't get me wrong, I like the odd odd beer in the off season. Well, not really beer, maybe a cider. I'm yeah. not a big drinker, but yeah, I I don't know. My body's really good. Like I've had no aches or pains That's at 36, great. and it might be because I didn't do much when I was growing or younger. That's my only theory, anyway. Why I've always been strong enough to handle the forces because I came later. Um, and I re- I don't have much time off, like after the season, two or three weeks where I let my body have a, have a rest, but then I'm training again. So 
yeah, I've, I feel like I've always been strong enough to handle the the forces, certainly for the back. You all, you can always get unlucky. Like, don't get me wrong. Like you saw, for instance, Victor Muffa crashed in Adelboden and it was pretty much no fault of his own. He was just slightly too close to the gate and it's ended his season. So you need a bit of luck. I only ski slalom now, so the mm. speeds are down. Um, so yeah, I think just just being, I don't do anything super like out there. I just live a balanced life, balanced diet. If I fancy the odd donut in the season in the off season or whenever, I'll have a, the odd yeah. one. I'm not a marathon runner, and and it keeps my mind sane. But um, yeah, I think the most important thing is to stay hungry and motivated. If you it, I if I can keep training as much as the young guys, um, then I have every chance to be able to ski as fast as them. I know at some point something's going to say enough's enough, whether it's the mind, body, or or I just get slow, which will happen. Yeah. Um, but if I can train as much as the young guys and keep pushing as hard, then I should should be able to keep going with them for as long as long as something says no. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Motivation's huge. I don't know if you have like, I mean, maybe they're personal. Sometimes I have things in my head that I'm like, I'm just going to keep that in my own head. But I don't know if you yeah. have any tidbits of things that you kind of repeat to yourself to motivate you. No, I think it's just... It's, my motivation, like anyone's, comes and goes, but the commitment has... I, I, If I'm going to do another year, say if I'm going to do next year, then I will only decide to do that when I know I can commit to training as hard as I always have. I'll get some goals for the, for the training in the off-season to stay as strong as I've always been and as fit as I've always been. And if I, can, want, if I feel like, right, I can com- commit to that, then I get up in the morning and even if I don't want to go in the gym, I go in the gym. And even if I don't want to train, I will train. And it's not really the motivation. It's the it's the level of commitment. And that's why even with having a baby now, I was like, right, well, I'm committed to the skiing. So I know I can still do the training. So I'm going to do it. If I didn't think I could commit like I, I have done for the last 10 years, then I wouldn't do it because then I know I would lose something and, and it would be a downward spiral. So, yeah. Yeah. Commitment's the, the key, I, I would say. Motivation comes and goes for absolutely everybody. Yeah. And you've got to do it when you don't want to do it, which is the hard thing. I, and But that's also good to have the young guys because when I'm like, oh, I feel tired today and trying to make an excuse for myself, I look at the timing after the first run, I'm like, oh, crikey, I'm getting <laughs> slaughtered here. Right, okay, here we go. And and, and it brings you up. So, yeah, it's um, having the right people around you that will – the one thing that my coach will always do is tell it me straight. And that's, that's good. massive. And he's not hes not interested in being Mr. Nice and he's not interested in, he's not scared at hurting my feelings. Mm-hmm. But I always know, even when I think, ah, the, I won't like, what the heck's he on about? A day later or whatever, I'm like, you know what? He got a response out of me and he made my day better. And if you can... Like there's days where I wanted to punch him and whatever I think X, Y, and Z about him, but it always comes back to him being honest, telling me how it is, not scared of hurting my feelings, mm-hmm. and then I I get on with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I've I've had coaches like that. Do you ever need a little positivity? Does he have a good balance of that, or do you kind of have a enough of a positive compass in your brain that you're not worried oh yeah about yeah that. he's he's positive as well as negative um uh-huh. but he knows me over the years that he knows how to flick a switch and he knows what to say that will provoke either an angry or something just provoke just a response you. Yeah. yeah just a response to change to change the mindset or to change something to try and be to get a a better outcome so yeah it's it's not always negative not always positive sometimes it's it's positive sometimes it's negative yeah, sometimes it's downright you're getting beaten by X, Y, and Z, and then I'm like, oh, I'm crying out loud. Yeah, I know I am, and I know I, but yeah, it's, it works. Yeah, nice. Um, as we're nearing the end of this, I I realize someone who listens to the pod, a couple people who listen to the podcast always tell me, you got to put in more questions about other things besides skiing. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess like, do you have any hobbies outside of skiing that is just like your way to escape from skiing that maybe no one would expect or like a TV show or something? I play fantasy football, which is keeps my mind away from skiing in the season. American so, football? No, or? no, soccer. Uh, okay. 
Um, but in the summer, I actually, um, for some reason, I stumbled across it when, you know, when you're going through YouTube and whatever. I started watching disc golf and it's massive in America. So, and I was looking in the UK, right, do we have any courses? And there's one about 50 minutes to an hour away from me. So I got into disc golf um, probably three years. I didn't do much this summer because of the little one on the way and getting married. Um, so I only actually played one round, but I did a few like I, you find the football field and you can throw some discs. That's that I'd say that's my hobby now. After skiing, I'll probably go back to normal golf as well because I used to play a lot of golf when I was young, but now it just takes up too much time. Yeah. And you're hacking around for four hours. You're shattered. You can't really train after it. Um, so for sure, when I finish skiing, I will bring back some other hobbies. But now it's, yeah, well, I, I love my, I love training. Like I just, it's just ingrained in me. That's my life now. But I also, yeah, a bit of disc golf is my, sort of outside of skiing hobby and you'd be amazed what sort of technology goes into these discs and how they fly and different lengths and it's crazy but yeah we got into it a little yeah. bit in new zealand yeah, this that's summer where i first played because there's new so zealand. many courses yeah, in new yeah. zealand and it's there's some beautiful landscapes yeah. to play in and and we started looking at like they have different numbers yeah yeah the, how like you've got your driver and, yeah, and yeah. then it has a certain amount of play where it, yeah. it tilts one direction Fade and then it comes back and, the other yeah, way yeah. yeah yeah minus four plus three and distance yeah that it's it's fun yeah i've got about 16 to 20 discs now in my bag for really the, yeah <laughs> for, the, for the courses i don't use them all but you know i can't resist buying a new disc and just lobbing it down the field well i guess it's kind of similar to skiing right like you're trying to dial in your setup yeah, and yeah. It's like but the, the wind athletics. is a killer you think wind's yeah. bad in golf wait till you throw in a frisbee in the wind then it's a real killer i used to play on a course um on sugarbush mountain where we used to live and it was a downhill course so you'd and it was windy yeah. on the mountain every day. And then it was and it was narrow trails. So it was horrible because you'd throow the disc and yeah. it would catch the wind and it's going downhill yeah. and it would just soar off into the woods. You'd trek yeah. around in the woods trying to find it, yeah. but it's still a blast. To to kind of close this off, I've got questions. I asked Instagram yeah. if they had any questions. So kind of gonna fire off a couple questions here. Um, from Theo. He wonders, or maybe it's Teo, I'm not sure, wonders what your favorite football club is. Uh, Liverpool. Liverpool. Yeah. Okay. Ian uh, asks you to describe Tristan in three words. I think I know what Ian that's going to be. Tristan, I would say motivated. I'd say hardworking as one. Well. Passionate. Uh -huh. yeah. And he also asks you to describe Charlie Raposo in three words. <laughs> <laughs> I know you guys have a bit of banter back yeah, and forth. Yeah, Charlie Raposo in three words, or three sex, three like. I'd say, <laughs> one prima donna, two <laughs> a good talker, uh -huh. and three. Ah, oh, he's good laugh. He's a good laugh. I, yeah. And I like to rip Charlie, but he's he's a good laugh. He's a good guy. Yeah, a good GS gear too. Yeah, on his on his day, he's yeah. still got to get that consistency. Yep. And I'm sure he'll be listening, so that's why I'm saying it. <laughs> yeah, Charlie, get it. <laughs> and now from a Charlie, why are you still using plastic shin guards as opposed to carbon? Oh, they love this one. Well, I, I only use plastic because I, I tried to use carbon and I've cut them down. I've changed, tried to change the shape. I just can't initiate the top of the turn the same without the really? plastic shin guard. Yeah, it blocks my like ankle flexion at the top of the turn. Um I did two years with Dina Star until I went crawling back to Fisher. And I used carbon for those two years because the boot angle was different. But how I like to ski with the Fisher boot and the, the Fisher ski is is a bit more ankle flexion. And then I can't do the do the movement that I want to do. That's really interesting. And now yeah. I'm probably going to look at that on yeah, my yeah. video. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I, so I tried like crazy to, to use the carbon shin card because especially in hairpins or, or the verticals when there's a double gate, it clears the gate way better. Um, and sometimes with the plastic shin guard, it, it just wraps around my legs more. So I definitely would like to use the carbon if I could, but in, in a rhythm section, then I'm just way better with, with the with the uh, plastic. Huh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, oh, and, and then this one we've kind of already talked about. Agim asked your secret to slalom at your age. Just being dogged and trying to keep up with the young guys on a daily basis yeah yeah just keep yeah training if you can train and do it do you have any superstitions 
no, I don't really. I heard Daniel Yule, I know you were well, and he said, I think once he said, always put his right boot on again at first. Yeah. Um, always put your right boot on first. And I was having a stinker of a day once. And I was, it was actually for a parallel race in Oslo. And, I, and the last words I said to my coach before it was, I'm like a duck out of water because I didn't like the cross block. I thought, oh, sod it. I'm going to put my right boot on first. And I was second. <laughs> so now I'm like, all right, well, if it pops into my head, I'll put my right boot on first. But that's that's all I ever ever do. Yeah, that's that's funny. Yeah. That Was that that city event? Yeah, yeah, the yeah. city event in Oslo. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Well, we're at the end, but I always give my guests an opportunity to say anything they want like if you have sponsors you want to shout out or people you want to shout out or um like an idea you didn't get to talk about that you wanted to talk about anything at all no i mean everyone knows my sponsors uh, that's the biggest thing about winning kitspiel was it didn't just feel like it was for me it felt like it was for all those people that have helped me over the years like my coach my serviceman who they put their life on hold for me as well it's not just me out here everyone's out here so yeah, I mean, I'll always be grateful of, of the people that have supported me throughout my whole career. And yeah, I, I guess I've tagged them all the time on Instagram. So yeah, Fisher and Fisher, Obergurgle, everyone, you know, that supports me. Um, yeah, thanks. And see if we can keep going for a bit longer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm convinced. I'm convinced you're, 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 you're still hitting your prime. I'm not sure about prime, but I'm still here. Maybe my my prime wasn't as good as it could have been because I wasn't as good young. So maybe that's why I'm still actually able to do the what's good for me. Like I never won a globe or anything, but I'm the oldest ever winner of a slalom. So I've come good at some point. Hang your hat on that. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll keep that stat for now. Absolutely. Well, everyone, make sure to tune in and watch Dave riding on the slalom tour. Dave, thanks for joining Arc City. No problem. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for the skiing history nugget of the week. So I am currently looking at the January-February 2023 edition of the Skiing History Journal. There's an article by Jackson Hogan. And not to call some of you old, well, let me restart here. (laughs) I'm treading lightly. My younger listeners may not know the history of bindings, where, for instance, in 1970, skiers suffered an average of seven medically significant injuries per 1,000 skier days which is a lot. I mean, there were a lot and a lot of broken legs and knees. So Dr. Eugene Boniuk was involved with a subcommittee that included 60 different academics, equipment suppliers, and retailers who wanted to make bindings release in a better fashion. They led a delegation to the International Standards Organization, ISO, in 1973. And then in the in the mid seventies, they ran a study called the Sugarbush Study. You know, it was done at Sugarbush Mountain in Vermont, and they relied on ski patrol accident reports, uh, medical reports, and then actual tests with the machine they had on each injured skier's ski binding boot system. Because back in those days, there were different bindings and different boots, and people mixed them all. And it led to, um, you know, bad results. So there was a guy named Carl Etlinger who designed this machine. He was a mechanical engineer. And he designed this device that would simulate the stresses of mechanical tibia, you know, the, the bone in your leg, under a variety of loads applied to the ski. And it showed which gear failed to release when it actually should have released. You know, instead, the, the leg takes the force and it breaks. The Sugarbush study revealed two main culprits contributing to the crazy amount of lower leg injuries. One, boot sole materials and shapes, and two, the absence of an anti-friction device, which is called an AFD. You may have heard of that under the ball of the foot. If you've noticed nowadays, every binding has some sort of slippery surface or 
sliding device right under the ball of the foot. Now, the resolution of these two problems resulted in a huge drop in lower leg fractures. And it's just, as this article says, quote unquote, it's impossible to overstate the value of the Sugarbush study to skier safety. Apparently, the cost savings to American skiers for tibia fractures alone amounts to nearly $600 million a year in medical expenses and roughly that same amount in non-medical costs. It wasn't an easy road getting to the point where we're at today because manufacturers were very hesitant to suddenly change their their bindings and, and boots and take the financial hit to bring everything to a standard compromise. The first organization to ratify the new boot sole specification was actually the German Standards Institute, and in German it's called the Deutsches Institut für Normung, or D-I-N, DIN, so that's where we get DIN from. Actually, DIN technically isn't right, it's it's the, an American organization, ASTM, but um, and, or ISO, but everyone still calls the binding specifications DIN. Anyway, that's a fun little fact for you. So since the 70s and the standardization of boots and bindings, which occurred in the, you know, finally kind of in the early 1990s, tibia fractures have been nearly eradicated, which (laughs) I like, which says it says it on the article right here. I like to, to debate that because me along with four of my friends on the U.S. team have all had tibia fractures in the past year and a half. Um, But they are lower than they have been um, for the general skiing population. And lower extremity injuries generated by forward falls have dropped by 80%, and injuries generated by twisting forces have dropped more than 90%. So you can thank this man, Dr. Eugene, what was his name, Boniuk, B-A-H-N-I-U-K. You can thank the, the man who invented the device to help with the Sugarbush study. His name was Carl Etlinger. And you can thank, you know, these guys who, who, who were involved in all of that. Now, the war over alpine boot and binding standards has moved on to the alpine touring standards because there's so many different binding types and boots and grippy sole boots and pin bindings and non-pin bindings and that is currently a war that is being waged in the international uh, boot and binding retailer community and that will do it for us here in arc city this time don't forget to leave a rating for arc city especially if you think it deserves five stars If you think it deserves one star, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, DM me on Instagram or email me. And if you have any questions or comments or anything, I always respond to emails and DMs. As always, if you see me on the hill, make sure to say hi. And until next time, make sure to smile more, frown less, and if you currently have access to snow, rip as many arcs as you can. I'm Jimmy Krupka, and thank you for visiting Arc City. Arc City.